Welcome to Zion Fellowship's Bible Wire. In these podcasts, we discuss what the Bible says, line upon line and precept upon precept. Today, Ben Allen, that's me, will be beginning our study on the book of Obadiah. Settle in for the next few minutes and learn more about who God is and how he loves. Hi, everyone. In this new series, we will be going through the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It tells of Yahweh's judgment on Judah's neighbor, Edom. Remember, Yahweh is the name of the God we worship. Injustice does not go unrecognized by Yahweh. And in the case of Edom, their injustice, the tormenting of the people of Judah while Judah was invaded by other nations, meant their coming downfall. Obadiah also envisions that Judah itself will be restored. This theme of the coming of the Lord, or rather the, the day of Yahweh, when God will execute judgment and fulfill his promises, it's common, it's a very common theme among other prophetic books, such as Joel and Amos. And now, before we begin, I think it's important to talk about why we chose this book. Why did I choose to do this book? Well, first of all, it's part of the Bible. It's part of the Old Testament. It's an obscure book that a lot of believers will either overlook or they don't know much about. I think if this part of the podcast, if this podcast as a whole is about biblical literacy, it's important we include even the most unknown books of the Bible. It's not always Acts, it's not always uh, Genesis, it's not always the Gospel, but we're going to talk about all the books of the Bible, and I'm not here to protect you from the Word of God. So this book is important because it helps draw and show us who God is and what he does to his people's enemies, particularly how he responds to proud nations. Whether nations or people, he humbles all of them. While his judgments and punishments are difficult to understand, especially for new believers, it's imperative to understand that we let the text tell us who God is and how justice should look, as opposed to our own sense and feelings of what, may, what we may think what right or wrong is. With all that said, let's dig into some background for this book. I think it's helpful to bring out some in order to better understand the place of the book. The first line of Obadiah identifies the book as the vision of Obadiah. The writer is a man named Obadiah who seemed to be a prophet. His name means servant of Yahweh. Several people named Obadiah are mentioned in the Old Testament, but it's unclear any uh, or whether any of them may be identified as a prophet of this text. And it also is unclear when the book was written. So who, who are the players of this book? Who are the people being spoken about? Well, um, first of all, the Israelites had a long and checkered history with their neighbors, the Edomites. They were the descendants of uh, Jacob's brother Esau, see uh, Genesis 20, 25, 23, 27, 41, and the Bible describes Esau as the father of the Edomites. 
Genesis 36.9. And so the connection between Esau and Edom is based on etymology. Edom is derived from a Hebrew word meaning red, Adom. Um, it's not like Adam, which is spelled A-D-A-M, it's A-D-O-M. Um, but Esau is also called Edom in Genesis 36.1, verse 8, verse 19, and verse 43. And as some may know, Esau was born with red hair. And so we have the Edomites, we have the Israelites, also Judah, uh, which are the same as the Israelites for the most part. We have God and the other nations, okay? And so when we look at others' books in the Old Testament, um, we see the books of Joshua and Judges making no mention of the Edomites' interaction with Israel during the conquest and settlement. However, Saul, David, and Solomon each engaged Edom with military force. David completely subdued Edom, leaving an Israelite military presence in the territory and collecting plunder for Yahweh. This is as what uh, some new believers might find shocking. But if you read in 1 Chronicles 18.11, as well as 1 Chronicles 18.13, and during the reign of Solomon, the struggle between Edom and Judah slash Israel, as again, they're, they're kind of used synonymously, with Hadad's rebellion is in 1 Kings 11.14. And so there's this coalition that actually existed between Joram of Israel, Jehoshaphat of Judah, and the deputy ruler of Edom against Mesha of Moab, um, wouldn't last long. And so you have Jehoram, Amaziah, and Ahaz all had conflicts with Edoms for various reasons during the period of the divided monarchy. So Judah and Israel split after Solomon's reign. And then you have prophetic literature reflecting this tension with numerous statements of judgment and doom against and upon Edom. For example, Isaiah 34, 5 through 6, Jeremiah 49, Malachi 1, 4. Most of the book of Obadiah is prophecies against Edomites. Again, let me say that again. Most, most if not all, the book of Obadiah is prophecies and judgments against the Edomites. The events mentioned in Obadiah could have occurred in several different time periods, trying to place the timing of this book. The invasion of Jerusalem in Obadiah 11, for example, could point to the total destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And so this date is supported by the record of the Edomites joining in the looting and committing violence against the inhabitants of Jerusalem in Psalm 137.7, Lamentations 4.21. In addition, the, the literary style of Obadiah 1 through 9 is similar to that of Jeremiah 49, 7 through 16, which was written around the fall of Jerusalem. So again, that's a possibility. Uh, another possibility of a 9th century BC date is based on 2nd. Kings 8, 20-22, uh, and Second Chronicles 21, 8-10, which record Edom's revolt against Judah during the reign of King Jehoram. And so whenever the events of Obadiah took place, the main issue, again here, is that the Edomites viewed the suffering of the people of Judah as an opportunity for gain instead of a time for grieving. Now, with all that background out of the way, I appreciate you bearing with me. Let's read the first nine verses. Okay, verse one. The vision of Obadiah. 
I'm reading also, by the way, the ESV, the English Standard Version, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You will live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. End quote. Wow. That's pretty heavy. Probably the, one of the heaviest verses that we've gone through in this podcast. So, again, read it through a couple times and join me now. In the first verse of Obadiah, we read that this prophet Obadiah has or had uh, the gift of the inspired insight into the purposes of God. Obadiah uses the typical messenger formula of the prophets, which serves at once to affirm the divine authority and specify the target of his prophetic pronouncements. The prophet does not speak in his own name or write, but introduces himself as a messenger from, whom, uh, from one whom he regards as the overlord of the nations. His message concerns Edom, Judah's eastern neighbor and long-standing rival. Their first, uh, excuse me, this, these four, first four verses may parallel Jeremiah 49, uh, six, uh, 49 verse 14 through 16, uh, which says, I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. For behold, I will make you small among the nations, despised among the mankind. The horror you inspire has deceived you in the pride of your heart. You who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. The oracle begins in a characteristic uh, way by Yahweh's announcing his purpose of imminent intervention in Edom's affairs. This first word, hania, traditionally rendered behold, ithu in Greek, is designed to arrest the hearers and focus their attention on God's coming involvement in the affairs of men. This verb here implies something to the effect of God's deed is as good as done, signaling that Edom's fate is sealed. The Edomites are victims of their own self-deception. The Hebrew word salah, rocks, 
does not refer merely to the rugged terrain of Edom in general, but alludes to specifically Salah, Edom's capital, which was situated on, a, on the high plateau of Um el Briayel. This formidable rock mass could be ascended only from the southeast, and the other faces consisted of perpendicular cliff walls. Perched on the top of this natural fortress, the Edomites assimilated from their inhabitant a superior attitude of impregnability, which represented a defiant challenge. Who can bring me down to the earth? This deception of arrogant Superman attitude serves as a stark prelude to the shock of their imminent downfall. This statement is clear. It dismisses Edom's power and elevates God's might. The mighty will become little and belittled. The high in habitat and in flight of fancy will be brought low. The next two verses announces the punishment Edom will endure. These verses develop the thought of it preceding in the preceding context. Metaphors are used to describe the utter desolation that will be theirs. The raiders are represented first as burglars who raid a house and leave nothing of value free in the owner's absence or while he sleeps to make off with anything they fancy. And so the prophet pursues this scene with a second metaphor derived from the grape, grape harvest in verse 5. Busy hands plucking impatiently at the vines till they are virtually denuded are used as dread symbols of the enemy ravaging through the well-stocked cities of Edom and leaving behind only bits and pieces of no real worth. This second metaphor is apt since the mountainous slopes of Edom provided a good location for grapevines. Esau, or Edom rather, is to know no alleviation but is to be exposed ruthlessly to the greedy hands of enemy looters. The warehouses of this trading center, crammed with valuable goods, are to be broken open, and the safes of its wealthy merchants are to be left empty and destitute. In the seventh verse, the prophet continues his theme of Edom's destruction. He uses the prophetic nature of Hebrew in three stanzas. By way of repetition, the poet savors the stark contrast between the obligations of fidelity and the eventual stab in the back. Deception is stressed again, as previously in verse 3. Edom's security, based both on the impregnable position and on international alliance, will prove equally ill-fated and ill-founded. And finally, in the final stanza, underscores Edom's lack of awareness. The Edomites are taken completely by surprise. And so if you could imagine these first nine verses as this music um, piece that begins wide, silent and, 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 and cold, but now crescendos up into this reckoning. In the final verses of this episode, it matches and piles on with what the prophet said at the beginning in verses 2 and 4 and brings a close to the first section. Two parallel statements are made concerning Edom's twin assets of wisdom and military strength. 
Their parallelism is indicated by the repetition of out of Mount Esau at the end of the second line and toward the end of the third. The, the oracle is closely integrated with the preceding stanza, stanza by the way it picks up the thought of lack of knowledge and develops it. An element that frequently appears to be the, in the concept of holy war in Hebrew thinking is the notion of Yahweh as a secret ally, creating havoc in the enemy ranks by confusing their reactions and robbing them of morale and confidence. It is this motif of divine help against the adversaries of Israel that is here reused concerning the war against Edom, Judah's arch enemy. But now it is not Israel, but other peoples whose efforts are reinforced by Yahweh's aid. He is to strike a mysterious blow against the expertise for which Edom was famed. In this book's commentary, I'm utilizing the New International Commentary of the Old Testament. Leslie Allen says, In the book of Job, Eliphaz, whose traditional wisdom is attacked, is stated to have come from Timon in Edom. In Edom's bazaars thronged peoples of the east uh, who brought with their wares travelers' tales of learning and lore. It was probably this byproduct of its being a center of trade and travel that gave rise to Edom's awesome reputation for wisdom. Here it, its wisdom takes the form of skill in military strategy, but the God who had overthrown the council of wise old uh, Ahitophel, again, forgive me the pronunciation, this is 2 Samuel 17, 14, if you want to look it up yourself. It is to intervene now to distort the thinking of Edom's military and political adversaries. Their shrewdness will be no match against foes on whose side Yahweh fights. And finally, this secret weapon of bewilderment which causes incompetence is to be wielded against the Edomite troops. Tiamen, an important city of Edom, is here used poetically as part for the whole. The nation's army, losing their sense of morale and esprit de coup, would flee in panic, especially victims for their pursuing foes. God's purpose is nothing less than the complete annihilation of Edom's forces. In closing, these nine verses stress that no natural impregnability, nor native wisdom, nor national manpower are enough defense against an awesome God. God will also humble the proud, exercising them from their wit, its warriors, its warhouses, and leave it in utter ruin. Its allies will turn against them and come back next time. For in the next episode, we see the accusation of crimes fitting each punishments in these nine verses. Thank you. We have reached the end of today's Bible Wire podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, or if you'd like more resources related to this podcast, you can find us online at www.zionfellowship.net. We're also available on social media. Look for Zion Fellowship. Thank you for joining us today on Bible Wire.